We're going to look at Ruth chapter 1, verses uh, 1 to 22. And you can find it printed in your bulletin. This is the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. For the month of December, uh, we're going to look at the short little story and the short little book, uh, the book of Ruth. And if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, you know it's, it's one of the nice, positive, feel-good stories in the Bible. Some people say it's kind of like the ancient version of a Cinderella story. And uh, over the next few weeks, what I want to encourage you to do, if, uh, if you have about 10 to 15 minutes, is try to read through the story a couple times and familiarize yourself with the story. Because even though it's a very short story, which you could probably read in one sitting, there are a lot of big themes here and a lot of things that I think are amazing to see. And, uh, of course, I'm not going to be able to cover it uh, in full, but you have themes like uh, human suffering, themes like the sovereignty and the providence of God in the midst of human sin and human suffering. And you have this great big theme of love, God's love. 
And therefore, this book is kind of like a, a precious jewel where, you know, you look at it from different angles and you see another aspect or another perspective of its beauty. So even if you read it three or four times, I think each time you kind of notice something new and something beautiful every time you read it. Now, as I said, I'm not going to be able to hit on all of these themes, but during this series, I do want to focus on one particular theme in, uh, or one theme in particular, which is the theme of love. The book of Ruth, the story of Uh, Naomi, uh, in many ways, is a story of love. But I don't think love is a very adequate word to describe exactly what we're going to see in the story, uh, especially because of our culture and the way our culture tends to understand and define love. Uh, For us, love is oftentimes a sentiment or it's a feeling. And when love is a feeling only, it can lead to some problems. Uh, So, for example, uh, when I was in seminary, I had this class, and there was this counselor who specifically counsels uh, pastors, and uh, she came in. Her name was Leslie Vernick, uh, but she has this book that she wrote called How to Act Right When Your Spouse Acts Wrong, and one of the things that she says is that, you know, in our culture, everybody wants to feel good, and therefore people don't really understand what love truly is, at least biblical love, and so she would say, you know, I would counsel someone who wanted to leave their wife, And this person would just say this, I I just don't uh, have this loving feeling towards my wife anymore, and I can't imagine living the rest of my life with someone that I don't love. And so what they would eventually do, they would leave their spouse. And she would say the assumption there is that love is ultimately this feeling, and because love is a feeling, it's something that is out of our control, And therefore, when I say I don't feel love for a person, it's out of my control, and and I'm absolved from the lack of love I have. But if you understand love is uh, more than a feeling, that love is also a choice, that love is an action, then the story looks very different. That same man uh, should say, uh, I choose not to love my wife anymore. I can't imagine living the rest of my life with someone I refuse to love. And that is actually a more accurate statement, uh, but it sounds worse, right? Because it makes him accountable for uh, the brokenness of his marriage and his relationship. And so uh, this uh, counselor was telling us these stories and reflecting upon uh, the concept of love, biblical love versus the love of our culture. And I think the story of Ruth, it shows us that love is definitely much more than a feeling or a sentiment. There's an important Hebrew word that comes up several times in this book, And it's so important that uh, I'm probably going to use it all throughout the sermon series. And that Hebrew word is hesed. Hesed. The reason why it's important is because in the book of Ruth, that word is, uh, is a central theme, I would say, in terms of how we see the various relationships playing out. This word is translated here, at least in the book of Ruth, as kindness. And so, for example, if you look at verse 8, Naomi says, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And that word translated kindly is the word hesed. Now, commentators will say it is not an easy word to translate into English because in the English language, we don't have a word that really encompasses the full meaning of this word hesed. Rather, hesed, it combines uh, various different concepts into one Hebrew word. It combines concepts such as love, mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, loyalty, covenant, faithfulness. All of these things are combined into this one little Hebrew word, hesed. And in American culture, our concept of love is a little bit weak compared to, compared to the Hebrew conception of love. And so as one writer puts it, when we think about hesed love, 
Basically, it's love without an exit strategy. Love without an exit strategy, because you see feelings come and go. But love without an exit strategy means this, that there is a, a, a sense of loyalty, but there's also a sense of determination to choose to love this other person, even when it's hard and even when they don't deserve it and they're not worthy of it. And this, is, this entire story shows us what hesed love looks like through all of these different characters, but ultimately it points to God's hesed love for his people and for us. Now the remarkable thing about the kind of love that we see in this story is this. You really begin to see it and it emerges in a very, very dark period and a very difficult moment in Naomi's life. And if you read the first five verses, it basically lays out the setting and gives us the context. Naomi, she is a woman. She is married to a man named Elimelech. And they lived during the days when the judges ruled, which basically means that they lived during a very spiritually dark period of the people of Israel well, where everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes and they weren't doing what was right in God's eyes. But not only that, it says here also that there is a famine in the land and famine in the Old Testament is usually associated with God's judgment. And so it's likely because of this famine uh, in the land of Bethlehem where uh, God's people were dwelling, they decide to move and they decide to go to the land of Moab. Now there, there's an irony here. You know, uh, I just realized this for the first time, but I think Dave is a wonderful uh, communicator, very poetic, very, uh, Dave, you should do some writing or something, seriously. Um, I think he has like this very poetic heart and very artistic heart. You know, the, the story of Ruth is actually written in that way as well, and there's a lot of um, literary features here. So for example, you know the, the word Bethlehem, what that actually means is house of bread. And the author is, is showing this irony that uh, this family moved away from the house of bread, which experienced famine, in order to go to a place of abundance, which they thought was in Moab. But rather than being a place of abundance for this family, it ended up becoming a place of emptiness. And uh, so in search of, uh, of food and in search of a better life in the land of Moab, Elimelech, he takes his wife and his two sons and he moves to Moab. They settle down in Moab. And the question is, is that a good thing? Well, if you just look at it from a pragmatic lens, then yeah, no wonder you can blame him for moving his family into the land of Moab. He's just trying to feed his family. He's just trying to build a life for his family. But when you understand it in the historical context, it's actually not such a good thing. Because you see, the Moabites, uh, at least from the perspective of the Old Testament, the Moabites were not viewed uh, very positively. You know, the origin of the Moabites comes from Genesis chapter 9. And you have this character, Lot. And Lot has uh, two daughters, and these daughters, they have no offspring. And so what they end up doing is they get their father, Lot, drunk on wine in order to sleep with them so that they can get pregnant. Very scandalous, right? The oldest daughter gives birth to a son, and this son is called Moab. And that is the origin of the Moabites. Uh, it's not a great family history because the origins are found in this very scandalous, incestuous relationship. But not only that, there are these other issues with the Moabites. So for example, during Israel and their journeying through the wilderness, the Moabites, they offered resistance to the people of Israel when they were trying to pass through their land. Uh, when the Israelites, they camp in a, in a place called Shittim, uh, it says the men, they were seduced by the Moabite women, and they bowed down to the Moabite God, and uh, I should say, by the way, the ancient Near East, uh, 
The worship of foreign gods oftentimes is coupled with things like ritual prostitution, which is why there might be this connection between the seduction of Moabite women and the bowing down of foreign gods. But finally, even in the period of the judges, Eglon, the king of Moab, uh, he's somebody who oppressed the Israelites. And so if you are an Israelite, to move into this land of Moab is not such a, a positive thing because, one, you're leaving behind the land that God gave you, but two, you're moving to a land in which uh, the people were not very friendly and very good to the people of God. And so that's what Elimelech does. Now, what would end up happening as they moved to this land? Elimelech, he would die. Naomi would become a widow. She has two sons. These two sons marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And after about 10 years, both of her sons die. And you notice this, there are no grandchildren. And the fact that there are no grandchildren means that uh, both of her sons uh, and and their families uh, probably struggled with infertility. And at this point is where we begin to enter into Naomi's story. Naomi, she is not in a good place, spiritually speaking, uh, emotionally speaking, economically speaking. She is not in a good place. Her husband is gone. Her two sons are gone. She has no means of economic support. She is currently living in Moab in a foreign land. And she is somebody who has been basically drained of life. She is in a place of emptiness. In fact, she says it in verse 20 when she says, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. That is where she is at this point in the beginning of the story. She is in a place of brokenness and emptiness. I don't know if there's an analogy in our world, uh, at least that we are aware of or know of, that can adequately describe the depth of Naomi's emptiness, Um, but there might be. You know, this past week there was this article in the New York Times. Uh, I don't know if anybody saw it. It was a very sad piece, but it was very beautifully written, and uh, the title was called Why a Generation in Japan is Facing a Lonely Death. And if you haven't read it, I, I recommend that you read it because it's really well written, but it also illuminates the importance of community and f- relationships in terms of just our humanity. But the reason why this was a sad piece is because it's basically detailing an entire generation of elderly Japanese people uh, and uh, a generation of elderly Japanese people who are dying alone and who are living alone. And this generation, I think, according to the article, basically represents this, this mindset that the Japanese people had since the 1960s. Uh, and the author writes this, the, uh, a single-minded focus on economic growth followed by painful economic stagnation over the past generation. Uh, it has frayed families and communities, leaving them trapped in a demographic crucible of increasing age and declining births. And the reason why you have this generation of uh, Japanese elderly dying alone is because of this single-minded focus on just working on the economy, and I guess it has broken up families or uh, people maybe didn't work on growing families and and so forth. And so uh, just to give you an example, the the isolation is so bad that when somebody dies, uh, it it could take days, maybe even weeks, before someone would discover that that person was dead because they literally had no human contact or regular human contact with other people. And so if they, nobody saw them for a while, nobody would really notice. And, um, and it's a little bit gross, but people would only notice when the, the smell of the decaying bodies, uh, people would begin to smell it, and then they would 
go to their apartment and realize this person was dead. You know, in one extreme case, which I think got national attention over there in Japan, one person had been dead for three years. Can you imagine that? A person was dead for three years, nobody knew. And the only reason that uh, somebody discovered that they were dead is because, uh, you know, they had all their bills on auto pay, and after all the money ran out, which I guess took three years, uh, somebody realized, hey, the bills aren't being paid, and the authorities came and realized that this person had been dead for three years. Now, what kind of life is that? You might be physically alive, sure, during a period of time, but you are dead in every other kind of way. You know, when I read that article, it really reminded me of Naomi. That would have been the trajectory of her life. No husband, no sons. And in the ancient culture, widows in particular were very vulnerable because their husbands or their sons were essentially uh, their economic support. When husbands died, widows would often end up in this state of alienation and destitution. And that is why the Bible has this emphasis on taking care of who? Orphans and widows. We read that passage in in James uh, during our worship because they were the vulnerable in society. Now, Naomi, she is not only a widow because her husband has died, but her two sons have died as well. She has no present. She has no future. She has tasted and experienced the deepest kind of bitterness that anybody could imagine. But ultimately, this story, her story, and the story of Ruth, it doesn't end in sorrow, but it ends in redemption. Why? Because God would provide redemption for her through a very unexpected and improbable path. Redemption and fullness would come by way of Ruth, her Moabite daughter-in-law. In the story, when Naomi decides to return home to Bethlehem, uh, she tells her daughters-in-law, it's like, you know, stay here, go back to your mother's house, which essentially means that she's releasing them in order to go back to their homes so that they can get remarried. Initially, they both resist, but Naomi persists and basically says this, if you come with me, there is no hope for you. Right now, you can still get married. You can still have children. You can still have a future. You can stay with your people. Not only that, but God's hand is obviously against me, and therefore it's probably better for you if you are not with me. Go. Leave me. Orpah ultimately listens to Naomi. The text says she kisses her mother-in-law, which is, I think, a way of saying she kisses her goodbye. But Ruth, on the other hand, doesn't do that. Ruth clings to Naomi. You know, in stories, oftentimes you have a character who acts as a foil. I think Orpah functions as a kind of foil. uh, And I think her response is pretty understandable. Uh, Most people in that situation would probably have done what Orpah did. Who would choose a life of struggle? Who would choose a life of emptiness in a foreign land? Who would voluntarily forsake their own people and their own God and adopt a foreign people and a foreign God? Who would say, I am going, uh, <coughs> I am going to be buried with you when you die? Who would say that? But that's exactly what Ruth does. You see, this is not just ordinary kindness. And you can see why the word kindness, even the word kindness, is not enough to encapsulate this incredible act of Ruth, this incredible act of loyalty, commitment, love, and kindness. Ruth's act towards Naomi reflects this Hebrew word hesed, love. Ruth, she makes a kind of commitment to Naomi that you only really see today uh, in marriage. Verse 14, 
uh, when it says Ruth clung to her, it's actually the same word that we find in Genesis 2.24 when it talks about the first marriage, when husband shall leave or man shall leave father and mother and hold fast or cling to his wife and they shall become one flesh. It's the same Hebrew word there. Uh, There is this covenantal nature of that commitment that becomes more clear in verses 16 and 17 when Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you will go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Doesn't that kind of sound like a marriage vow? Till death to us part. You never hear someone express that level or that kind of love and that kind of commitment to a person outside of a marriage relationship in our day and age. But here you have Ruth expressing that kind of commitment and devotion to her mother-in-law, Naomi. But there's also another layer here because Ruth, she is a Moabite and therefore she grew up worshiping a different God. Here she's making a declaration that the God of Israel would be her God. And a lot of people understand this to be kind of like her profession of faith. This is kind of like her conversion. Ruth is professing to follow the God of Israel, which in itself is pretty remarkable, which shows us this, that God would have greater, a greater plan to use unlikely Ruth, a Moabite woman, as an agent of redemption for Naomi. And I think that's one of the things that this book shows us about God's plans, God's providence, God's sovereignty, that God is at work even in the most improbable and unlikely of situations, even in the darkest and most emptiest of situations. God is at work, at least in this particular family's life, to bring about redemption. Now, when Ruth makes that declaration, it's a very special kind of love, is it not? It's, it's love without an exit strategy. Uh, it's, it's love that's saying no matter what, life or death, poverty or riches, I will be loyal to you. I will devote myself to you. You know, I know one of the fears that people have uh, nowadays regarding even marriage is this fear of commitment, fear of, is this person the right one? What if this person uh, becomes a different person? Or what if I don't like this person later? What if I can't stand this person later? And that's oftentimes a fear that a lot of people have before entering into marriage. And that's why love can be scary. This kind of commitment, this kind of devotion can be scary because it's risky. Because it's saying this, that I don't only promise to love you and be loyal to you now, but you're making a future promise, irrespective of what the future looks like. I will promise to love you in the future. And I I always emphasize that when I do premarital counseling, uh, to say that when you make your vows, you're not just saying you're going to love each other today but you are promising that you will always love each other, even in the future, regardless of how this person turns out. Now, I know one of the big news stories these days is what? It's uh, the sexual abuse and misconduct scandals from men, uh, especially men who are in positions of power. And, uh, you know, for those of us who aren't really connected to these men, uh, it probably is easier for us to kind of dismiss them and say they're they're horrible people uh, who have done horrible things. But you know what? It's, what's interesting is uh, it's a bigger challenge for somebody who was close friends with them uh, to do that, and especially for female colleagues or female friends uh, to do that. You know, after Louis C.K. and uh, the things that he did came out, uh, I, was, I saw the comedian Sarah Silverman. She's very good friends with Louis C.K., and she's addressing what he did, and I thought she was pretty honest with how she felt. She's trying to reconcile. She's wrestling with this fact that okay, I genuinely love my friend, Louis C.K., and she's trying to reconcile that fact with, 
but my friend has done all these horrible things to women, and I don't know how to uh, live with both of these facts. This week, revelations of Matt Lauer surfaced, and uh, his female colleagues expressed a similar sentiment. They're heartbroken, and they have to try to reconcile their love for their colleague, a person that they have known for so many years, and all of these horrible things that uh, he has done. You know why Hesed love is ultimately such a risky kind of love? Because it means this. You might end up pledging your love and devotion to a person who ultimately doesn't deserve it. And that is a huge risk. That is a huge risk. But when we decide to love someone, think about this. We probably don't give as much up as Ruth did here. Think about what Ruth gave up in order to love Naomi with that kind of love. She gives up her home. She gives up her family. She gives up her culture. And she becomes a foreigner in Bethlehem. She gives up the prospect of a life of comfort and security and exchanges it for a life of poverty and emptiness. Now, God would later give her a husband and provide, but at least at that moment, it seemed like a very unlikely thing. Ruth essentially gives up the good of her life in order to serve the good of Naomi's life. I think it's in that act and in that picture that we ultimately see the picture of God's love for us. We are in a season of Advent, and Advent is a season where we're anticipating the Christmas holiday. I don't think Ruth is traditionally uh, a book that you preach during the Christmas time, but I do think that there's so many themes in the book of Ruth that point to the Christmas story, to what Christ ultimately did for us through his incarnation. God would be so devoted to his people, God would be so devoted to the covenant that he made, that he would be our God, that we would be his people, and he would be so intent on keeping that covenant that he would pursue his people with that kind of love. The story of Hosea and Gomer God tells Hosea, marry a prostitute named Gomer. Gomer is supposed to represent who? The people of Israel and their adulterous ways. In that story, we are like the Gomers. We are like the spiritual adulterers, and God is the one who is pursuing us and loving us, even though we are unworthy of receiving it. And we ask, how does God pursue us? How does God pursue a people who are unworthy of love? He sends one who is better than Ruth in the person of Jesus Christ. What is a Christmas story about? You know, just as Ruth gave up her home, Jesus gives up his home through his incarnation. He gives up his glory in heaven so that he might dwell with us, so that he might be with us just as Ruth was with Naomi. Just as Ruth gives up her comfort and her security, so also does Jesus give up his comfort and his security and exchange it for a life of poverty and emptiness. Just as Ruth gave up her life for the benefit of Naomi, so too does Jesus Christ give up his life upon a cross for our benefit and for our good. You see what the, the Christmas story is about? It is about God's Hesed love for us. The love that he demonstrated through this great act of Jesus Christ dying upon a cross for our sin and for our salvation. If you follow uh, the narrative arc of Naomi, she starts from a place of emptiness and she ends up in a place of being full. 
you know, the gospel message, what it does is it invites us to participate in that ark, that in our sin, in our brokenness, in our suffering, we are a people in a position of being empty, but God in his love, through the person and through the work of Jesus Christ, he makes us full again. Paul summarizes as well in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You go from empty to full, while Jesus goes from full to empty. That is the story of Christmas. And so you see love. Love in this story and love in the Christmas story. It's not fluffy, friends. It's not fluffy. Uh, It's not simply just about a season of time. It's not just about a season of feeling good and sharing joy and sharing good and exchanging gifts. Love in the Christmas story has a lot more substance. It's deep, loyal, firm in its commitment to show love, grace, mercy, kindness, even when the object of that love is unworthy of it. What did Naomi do to deserve the love from Ruth? She didn't really do anything. What did we do to be deserving of God's love for us? We didn't really do all that much. And herein, I think, lies the beauty and mystery of love of God in Christ. You know, I'm going to end here, but, you know, we, we often talk about love and the call to love God, the call to love neighbor. But I think maybe for some of us, perhaps it's a little bit too abstract and We don't really understand or know the fullness of what that is supposed to mean. How are we supposed to love one another? What does it actually mean to love one another? But I think that's why it's helpful that the Bible doesn't just simply give us a command, but it also comes with a story. You see, stories not only show us what love looks like, but they also inspire us to love in such a way. I think I was asking somebody about Fast and the Furious before, if you've ever seen that franchise. One of the main themes in in those movies is what? family, right? Love. We, I think it's from the movie, we die together, wait, we ride together, (laughs) we die together, right? And we watch that movie, and I think maybe that's part of the reason why it's so popular. Maybe it's just the action and the cars, but maybe the theme is something that touches our hearts, and we're like, oh, that's amazing. They have such a wonderful community devoted to one another. They are so loyal to one another. Although that loyalty is questioned in the last movie, if you haven't seen it. We watch it, and then we leave, right? You know, the story of the Bible is a little bit different from the Fast and the Furious in the sense that it's not only meant to inspire us, but the story in the Bible is actually an invitation. And it says, this is God's story. This is the narrative arc that God has set for you in Christ. Come, participate in the story of redemption and love. Come, know Christ. Come know his love. And as we come to Christ, and as we receive his invitation, receive his love, essentially we get to partake in God's story of redemption. Friends, let's live in that story that we might receive that love, that we might know that love, but also that we might share that love. I know it's a tall task, and I know every day we're going to feel like we fall short of it. Every single one of us. But the more we know and receive the love of Christ, I think the more we'll realize we have all the resources to share that love because we have been given that love first.
Let's pray together.